Amen. Would you bow with me as we pray? Lord Jesus, we have considered this morning your greatness, your divinity, your power in creation, your power in redemption, saving us from our sins, and also the gracious presence you promised to us. You say that you will be with us. Lord, we ask that you be among us, be with us this morning through your spirit. And I pray, Father, that Christ would be preeminent in our hearts and in this place today, that he would receive the glory that he is due. So Lord, be with me, help me, uh, be with us as we listen, as we sit underneath the truth of scripture. May it wash us and renew us and conform us into the image of Christ. We pray this in his name. Amen. I'd like to invite you to turn back to uh, Titus chapter 2 once again this morning. We were in Titus chapter 2 last week, looking at verses 1 through 10, and I'd like to drill a little bit deeper into that same text this morning. Um, I've spent a lot of time thinking about and reading about and uh, considering the topic of preaching. It's a big part of what I'm supposed to do as a pastor, but maybe you haven't thought a lot about preaching. You listen to preaching every week, and maybe you sort of have a gut-level instinct about what you like and what you don't like and what preaching is about, but I want you to think about this morning that preaching has a goal. Preaching has a goal. There's a purpose to what we're doing right now. Um, There's a reason why a major feature of our worship every week is an extended time of opening the scripture and preaching God's word. As those who often listen to preaching, I hope it's clear to you what the goal is. Now, the goal of preaching... Uh, obviously includes, it involves the sharing of information. That's a big part of what we're doing. Uh, Faithful preaching is going to explain the Bible. It's going to define words. It's going to give the backstory of the, the passage that we're looking at so you understand the context. And the goal is that so scripture can be understood. So there is a sharing of information that should be happening every week. And that's really important. But listen, the goal of preaching is more than just delivering information. What we're seeking this morning is transformation, change. Romans chapter 12, verse 2 tells us, Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. As we receive the the biblical truth, as we grasp the information that's in God's word, it's intended to renew our minds so that we look different than the world, so that we are changed. Truth is to be proclaimed, truth is to be communicated, but truth is to have an effect. We're to be changed by it. As Paul points out in the opening verses of this little letter to Titus, the knowledge of the truth accords with what? We've been hammering on it. Do you guys remember what it is? It's godliness. The knowledge of the truth accords with godliness. So in light of that, I want to take some time to dig a little bit deeper into a theme that has already been so prominent in the book of Titus. In both chapter 1 and chapter 2, there's been a consistent emphasis on the virtue of self-control. Last week, we talked about how important that is, but I really didn't tell you much about, well, how do we grow in self-control? What does it look like? How do we pursue change and cultivate self-control? This is a theme that runs all throughout the book of Titus. As we saw in chapter 1, elders are to be above reproach, which includes, among other things, being self-controlled. We saw last week that the older men, chapter 2, verse 2, are to be 
self-controlled. That the older women, in verse 3 of chapter 2, are to demonstrate self-control with their words. They're not to be slanderers. They're to demonstrate self-control with their appetites. They're not to be slaves to much wine. And they're to have such a grasp on self-control that according to verses 4 and 5, they can actually teach the younger women how to be self-controlled. So it's a priority for older women, younger women. Then we look in verse 6 of chapter 2. The younger men are also to be self-controlled. Repetition of this idea. In verse 9, we find that bondservants or slaves are to be self-controlled. They're not to be argumentative, meaning that they must have self-control over their attitudes and over their words. They're not to be pilfering or stealing, which means they have to have self-control over their desires, over things like covetousness and envy that might prompt them to gain by, you know, just sort of skimming a little bit off the top from their employer. So self-control is all throughout this book of Titus. You might ask the question, why? Why did Paul emphasize self-control so heavily in this letter? I think we can just look at a couple quick reasons why Paul might be hammering on this issue of self-control. Number one, it's a cultural difficulty. As we saw in chapter 1, verse 12, um, that Cretans, what was sort of par for the course in their culture, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. It was a cultural issue that these people were prone or, 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 or used to not having self-control with their appetites. They're gluttons, meaning that they eat too much, drink too much. They're lazy, meaning that they don't work hard. They don't have discipline or self-control. So this was a cultural difficulty. Uh, it was in their nature and also in their culture. And that means Paul knew that faithful biblical leadership in the church was going to have to address this and confront it. And it's no different in our day. Uh, our culture is a hedonistic culture where people give in to their appetites and desires, and we worship self. Self-control is a cultural difficulty, but as we saw last week, it's also a missional necessity. It's a missional necessity. Paul emphasizes self-control all throughout chapter two because it's important that our lives display the truth and the power of the gospel. Three different times, Paul points out why their conduct matters. Verse five, so that the word of God may not be reviled. Verse 8, so that their opponents may be put to shame, having nothing evil to say about us. Verse 10, so that in everything they may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. Our conduct matters for the mission, and this means that self-control is an important part of demonstrating to the world that the gospel really is true, and it really does have power to change us. So it's a cultural difficulty, it's a missional necessity, but it is also a redemptive priority. Paul says we must cultivate and develop self-control because this is a redemptive priority. Look down in verses 11 through 14 of chapter two. Paul says the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, get this, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. Listen, Jesus died in order to bring about 
a zeal for good works in us. Jesus died so that we would be trained to be godly. He died to secure this virtue in us. The Christian life consists of saying no to self and yes to Christ. So we're to control the self, not worship or coddle or preserve or defend or seek self. And Jesus died for this. He died for this so that we would become that kind of person. I think we all probably wish that we were more self-controlled. If we were to go around the room and ask you, you might say, yeah, I'd like to be more self-controlled, maybe in the area of time management. I procrastinate too much. Maybe some of you would say, I'd like to be more self-controlled in terms of my physical appetites and desires. Perhaps for you, it's in the arena of your thoughts. Or perhaps the place you lack self-control is with your emotions and with your speech. But here's the good news. Self-control can be learned. It can be learned. You and I can grow as God's grace works out its purposes in our lives. That grace of God appeared, bringing salvation, verse 11. And verse 12 says that this same grace now trains us to live a self-controlled life. It is possible. Listen, the answer to sin The answer to your lack of self-control and my lack of self-control is always the grace of God provided through Jesus Christ. It's this grace that grants us true forgiveness. The grace of God appeared, verse 11, bringing salvation for everyone. That's Jesus Christ coming to this earth to live a perfect life, to die for our sins, to make atonement for our failures. This grace of forgiveness is freely granted to all who believe. And that's the solution to the penalty for our sin. But when we receive that grace, we're not just forgiven. We're also empowered to change. That grace trains us. So the question I want to ask this morning is, so how does this grace train us in the area of self-control? How can we grow in this area? How do we grow in grace? Well, I want to look this morning at three problems Three sort of explanatory reasons underneath our lack of self-control. And then talk about what the biblical solution for those problems are. This is intended this morning to be highly practical. It's a little bit of a topical sermon that's being taken from this text. Obviously, self-control is important. But, but I want you to imagine this morning that, that we're in the counseling room. This is sort of a group counseling session, okay? We all deal with this area of self-control. How do we grow? How do we change? I'd like to counsel you this morning from God's word and equip you to pursue change and transformation in the area of self-control. So let's look at these three problems and then the solutions to them. Number one, if we're struggling with self-control, it means, first and foremost, that we have a perspective problem. We have a perspective problem. And that means that growing in self-control requires biblical thinking. It requires that we think biblically. We have a perspective problem. So if we're going to grow in self-control, it requires that we think biblically. Our choices at any given moment, when we decide to say yes to our desires, or when we can't bring ourselves to say yes to our duties and our obligations, At any given moment, our choices reflect what we're thinking. It's shaped by our thoughts. So what's the wrong thinking that's underneath 
this lack of self-control. I'd like to just suggest two examples. This isn't exhaustive. But I think one of the the things that needs to change is that too often we don't see self-control as a spiritual necessity. We don't see it as a spiritual issue. We don't see this as an aspect of our walk with Christ. We don't see self-control as something that is part of our sanctification. And that's wrong thinking. That needs to change. That means we have the wrong perspective on this issue. We tend to see self-control as sheer willpower. Just something that, you know, everybody has to make themselves do things they don't want to do sometimes. And everybody has to, you know, not do things that they want to do. And there's a whole bunch of people in Douglas County who get up and go to work every day even though they don't want to. You know, and everybody just deals with self-control. It's just a human thing, but it's not really a spiritual matter. I mean, this isn't part of my relationship with Jesus, but Scripture would tell us different. Self-control is not just a matter of willpower. It is rather an expression of our submission to Jesus Christ. Think about that. Self-control is submission to Jesus Christ. Matthew chapter 16, verse 24, Jesus told his disciples... If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Saying no to yourself, denying self, is an essential aspect of how we follow Jesus. Galatians chapter 5, 24 tells us that those who belong to Christ Jesus... Those of us who have believed in his gospel, those of us who have decided to follow him and to, and to relinquish our rights to be our own God, Paul says those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. Listen, we need to start seeing self-control as an essential aspect of our identity as disciples of Jesus. That the old me, my will, my desires, that's all been nailed to the cross. And I am a slave of Jesus. To be sure, there is a worldly version of self-control that's out there. The ancient Stoics, for example, in Paul's day, they valued self-control. Modern mystics, likewise, seek to disconnect themselves from any physical desire and think that if we can just learn to sort of live above this world, we can attain a higher spiritual consciousness. They may express a certain kind of self-control. You can go to any average CrossFit gym and find all these people who are fanatics about self-control. They just want to be healthy. They want to look good in their bathing suit for the summer. There's self-control there of a certain kind. Any business office is going to have that guy who wants to climb the corporate ladder, so he's learned how to master time management and productivity. He's figured out a certain kind of self-control. Our culture celebrates athletes who rigorously discipline their bodies to perform at absolute peak level. I was watching this video that described Patrick Mahomes' off-season training regimen and how he's learned to squeeze every ounce of flexibility out of his hips and legs so that he can move around in the pocket and give himself another half of a second to throw the football. He only eats certain things, and he has this intense workout regimen, and he does it all year round. He's already started, even though they just finished their season. So we know that self-control exists out there in the world, in a sense. But listen, as Christians, we have a deeper reason for valuing and pursuing self-control. Our self-control is to be different than all those kinds of self-control. Our self-control is an expression of our faithfulness to Jesus Christ. 
in our submission to him, that we are not slaves to our flesh, but we have surrendered ourselves, our wills, to Jesus. Saying no to self is an expression of our faith and obedience in Christ. So this, when we're talking about self-control, please don't think that this is just some sort of lifestyle hack so that you can become more healthy or more productive or feel better about yourself, whatever it may be. No, this is part of our spiritual maturity. That's what this is about. It's a necessary component of Christ-likeness, which means that self-control is God's will for you. We spend a lot of time trying to figure out what's God's will for my life. And what we mean by that is, who should I marry? What job should I take? You know, should I take this promotion? Should we sell our house? Should I buy a new car or a used car? What's God's will for my life? We want those answers. God's will is our sanctification. God's will is that you and I would cultivate self-control, among other things. So we need to start thinking differently. We need to start seeing self-control as a spiritual necessity. So if you're going to change... Change starts in the mind to start thinking differently about this. But there's a second way that our thinking needs to change if if we're going to see this perspective problem fixed. We also tend to value immediate pleasure over long-term reward, don't we? We think that something in the here and now, some immediate pleasure, taking the path of least resistance, we think that that's worth it. We think that it actually will make us happy and satisfy us. We're all prone to take the short-term gain despite the long-term loss. So we neglect things that are eternally valuable for things that are temporary, things that are fleeting. Friends, this is foolish. This is unwise. This is a perspective problem that we only see what's right in front of us. Solomon wrote in Ecclesiastes chapter 2, verse 1, I said in my heart, come now, I will test you with pleasure, enjoy yourself. But behold, this also was vanity. Listen, Solomon already tried out this approach to life for us. He already tried it for us so that we don't have to. He said, I'm going to test myself with pleasure. I'm not going to deny myself of anything that I desire. Women, food, rest, leisure, entertainment, material gain, all of it, whatever my heart desires, I'm going to get it. And you know what he learned at the end of that experiment? It's empty. It's vanity. It's worthless. It's worthless. Let's be honest. Sin feels good for a moment. That's why it's so desirable. That's why sin is so seductive. Is because it does offer pleasure. It does offer a reward. It does offer some sort of immediate gratification. But it's a short-term joy. It's a short-term comfort. It is a fleeting pleasure that only lasts for a moment. And it is never enough. It's never enough. And it always leads to death. So we need to be honest. Sin does feel good, but it only lasts for a moment. But we also need to be honest about self-denial, self-control, that that's hard. It is difficult to say no to ourselves. It is difficult to submit our wills to our duties and obligations before God. When it's hard, we don't want to. It's going to cost us. There is short-term pain, but there's also an eternal reward. 
And we need the kind of big picture perspective that recognizes short-term cost and long-term gain. The Apostle Paul speaks about this in 1 Corinthians chapter 9. In an extensive passage starting in verse 24, he says, Do you not know that in a race all the runners run, but only one receives the prize? So run that you may obtain it. Every athlete exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable wreath. But we, an imperishable So I do not run aimlessly. I do not box as one beating the air, but I discipline my body and keep it under control, lest after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified. Paul points out a very simple example. They had athletic competitions in their day, Olympic games, and and other uh, other kinds of games where people would gather from all over the empire. And he said, listen, we've seen their self-control They eat a certain way, they train, they put their bodies through all sorts of craziness, risking illness and injury and all sorts of stuff just to get a little wreath. It's made out of leaves and and sticks and they put it on their head for a day and it's going to turn brown and fall apart. Listen, we also are called, Paul says, to discipline ourselves. Not to receive a perishable wreath, something that's going to disintegrate, but to receive an imperishable crown. Paul says there's an eternal reward, there's long-term gain, and that's why we discipline ourselves. Listen, here's how our thinking needs to change. Stop seeing self-control as loss. Maybe you see it that way. I can't have another drink. I can't have another helping. I probably should get out of bed right now. I can't let my mind keep thinking about this thing over here. I can't express all my emotions and give that person a piece of my mind as much as I would like to. We see that as negative. We see it as a loss. We need to start seeing self-control not as loss, but as a path to gain. Listen, self-control is not abandoning joy. Self-control is reaching for a better joy. As Jesus said, it's in losing the world that we actually gain it. So we need to think differently. Saying no to self and embracing boundaries and limits is good. It's the path to a greater joy. It's the path to a lasting reward. So we have a perspective problem. We don't always think rightly about self-control. Self-control, growing in this area, is going to require that we think biblically, that we start seeing self-control as a spiritual necessity, and that we also learn to see the true value of long-term gain over the short-term pleasures. So we have a perspective problem. We need to grow in thinking biblically. But there's a second problem I want to address this morning. Not only do we have a perspective problem, we also have a passion problem. We have a passion problem, which means that growing in self-control requires dealing with the heart. Our passions is just another word for our desires, and it's something that actually runs much more deeply than just our mind. You see, a lot of you actually do think biblically about this. You recognize that self-control is important, that it's biblical, that it's a matter of spiritual maturity, and you also know the long-term gain and the short-term cost, and and you, you read all of that rightly. And that's all up here. But the problem is there's still uncontrolled desires in the heart. Growing in self-control requires dealing 
with the heart. It's not just a matter of the head. It's a matter of the heart. You see, desires drive everything we do. When we're lacking in self-control, we need to examine our hearts. What does this say about my desires? That I can't stop doing this thing over here, or I can't bring myself to do this good thing that Christ calls me to. What does that really say about the desires of my heart? Proverbs 4.23 says, Keep your heart with all vigilance, for from it flow the springs of life. Until we deal with the heart, we've not dealt with the issue completely. You see, our choices about sleep or food or drink, it reveals our desires. Our choices about how we spend our time, how we spend our money, it reveals our desires. The words that we speak, the emotions we express, it reveals our true desires. It shows what we really care most about. It reveals what has become ultimate in our hearts. And these desires, friends, despite what the world says, the world celebrates desire, the world has made your personal desires something that's almost sacred, Uh, self-denial is seen as harmful in our world, they would call it repressing things that is going to cause you all sorts of mental health issues, and if you try to get in the way of someone else's desires, they will call you hateful. But listen, desires are not always to be trusted. In fact, idolatrous desires are dangerous, destructive, they can even be deadly. 1 Peter 2.11, Peter writes, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions or the desires of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. Peter says you must deny those things, abstain from those things, because it's at war with your soul. It's going to kill you. It's dangerous. James, similarly, James 1.14 says that each person is tempted when he's lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. Do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. Desires are not neutral. Desires can be sinful. Your desires are not to be trusted. Your desires need to be dealt with biblically. Listen, sinful desire, when we talk about self-control, I think sinful desire can take two forms. Um, There's a kind of desire for something that we should not have. And sometimes that's why we struggle with self-control. We want something we're not supposed to have. We could call that a desire in the wrong direction. That's a sinful desire. For example, when a man lusts after a woman who's not his wife, and he entertains those thoughts, This is a desire for something that God has not given him, something that God has said is not for him to have. So God condemns that desire as sinful. It's a sinful desire, not a neutral desire. It's a desire in the wrong direction. But desire can also be sinful when the object of our desire is not actually wrong. But that desire, even for a good thing, becomes too strong. It becomes a consuming, controlling desire. For example, there's nothing wrong with desiring food. There's nothing wrong with uh, desiring rest or sleep. There's nothing wrong with desiring, you you could fill in the blank, with a number of good things that are gifts God has given for us to enjoy. But a desire for too much becomes wrong. 
So sinful, so desire can be sinful in two ways. It can be sinful in direction when we want the wrong thing, but it can be also be sinful in degree. When our desire, even for something good, has become too much, too strong. And those are desires that need to be dealt with. Desires that need to be dealt with. So how do we deal with those desires? Maybe you have a few that are in your own life that you're recognizing, I have some desires that need to change. How do we deal with our passion problem? Well, step one is repentance. Repentance. Idolatrous desires, because that's what this is. When we want the wrong thing or we want the right thing in the wrong way, that's idolatry. Idolatrous desires need to be repented of. And maybe this will be helpful to you. I think one of the reasons why many people have not seen success in growing in self-control is because maybe you thought this was just a matter of increasing your willpower, just a matter of gritting your teeth harder, trying harder, setting reminders, you know, just different things like that that you might do just to increase your sheer willpower. But in that process, you didn't actually experience much victory. Why is that? Well, it's because you failed to repent of the idolatrous desires in the heart. You failed to repent of your lust for pleasure. You failed to repent of your idolatrous desire to escape pressure, to escape discomfort, to not have to experience whatever trial God has given you. You just want to pretend like it's not there. You failed to repent of your craving for rest or leisure. You failed to repent of your obsession with gaining or maintaining respect or control. Confess those desires as sin. Deal with the root issue. Our prayers should match what David writes in Psalm 51.10. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Before we start talking about practical tips to growing in self-control, we have to deal with the sinful desires in the heart. So step one is repentance. If we're going to deal with our passion problem, if we're going to deal with it at the heart level. Step two is what you could call redirection. So we repent of our wrong desires, but then we need to redirect them. These desires need to be directed to something better. Listen to what God's word says about desire. Matthew 5, 6, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. It doesn't seem like Jesus is condemning desire. He's just saying, aim your desires in this direction. Psalm 27, 4, one thing I have asked from the Lord, that will I seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and inquire in his temple. We're given an example of spiritual health and vitality. And it's not a picture of someone who lacks desire. Rather, it's someone who longs to know the Lord and to be in his presence. Similarly, Psalm 63, 1. Oh God, you are my God. Earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh faints for you. As in a dry and weary land where there is no water. Does that describe you? What does your soul thirst for? What is it that you long for more than anything else in the world? What direction are your desires pointed? They need to be redirected to God. 
Psalm 73, 25. Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. The Apostle Paul gives us a personal testimony in Philippians 3, verse 8. He says, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I've suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. Listen, the problem that we have is not too much desire. It's not that our desires are too strong. That's not actually our problem. The self-controlled life is not mere stoicism. It's not rising above our passions. No. God is not going to be honored if we are a bunch of emotionally numb followers who have somehow disconnected us, ourselves from all desire. I've coached lots of sports for little kids, and there's always that hyperactive kid who probably doesn't have anything wrong with him, but his parents have given him all this medication and then he's almost like a zombie at, at basketball practice. You talk to him, but it's like he's looking right past you. When there's a loose ball on the floor, he doesn't dive after it. He just kind of watches it roll by. We don't want to be the spiritual equivalent to that. People who have no desire, no passion, no drive, no zeal. We're just numb to our desires. No. It's rather that the object of our desire must be Christ and his glory. God is honored when he becomes the object of our desire, when our will aligns with his will. You see, God has strong desires. He is passionate for his glory. He is zealous to build his church. He hates evil. He wants our desires to be aligned with his. When we turn to God's word, when we immerse ourselves in scripture, we discover there's no shortage of truth and motivation that will help us to redirect our desires. If that's you this morning, you're saying, yes, I want to see my desires change in direction, and I want my small desires for Christ and his glory to become great desires for Christ and his glory. Well, what does scripture tell us? How does scripture help us? Well, number one, the fear of God compels new desires and strong desires. If you want to grow in having the right desires, learn to fear God. Proverbs tells us that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Wisdom is demonstrated often in self-control. There's a lot that Proverbs has to say about self-control. As we grow in our fear of God, it will help us to have right desires. It will help us to be self-controlled. Not only does the fear of God compel new desires, but also the love of God compels new desires. When we love God, it produces obedience. And 1 John 4.19 tells us that we love him because he first loved us. If you want to cultivate self-control, consider God's love for you. And then allow his love for you to produce within your own heart a growing love for him. If you love him with all your heart, soul, and mind and strength, your desire will be to honor him. Your desire will be to obey him. Your desires will be aimed in the right direction. The fear of God compels new desires. The love of God compels new desires. But also the promise of reward will compel new desires. Think about the reward that is ours and then desire it. It's not wrong to want the blessings that God promises. Listen to Hebrews chapter 11. It says, By faith, Moses, when he was grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God 
than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. He considered reproach of Christ greater wealth than all the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to the reward. Christian, are you looking to the reward? Are you desiring that reward? Are you hoping in that reward that God promises to those who seek him? Because if you are, that desire is going to produce within you a willingness to say no to things that aren't worth it and a zeal to say yes to everything that Christ commands. So as we grow in fearing God and contemplating his love and looking to the reward, our desires are going to change. They'll be aimed at the right thing, at Jesus Christ, and they will grow in degree. And all of a sudden, what you'll find is that you are becoming more and more self-controlled, able to say yes to the right things and no to the wrong things. Perhaps you need to pray this morning, Lord, forgive me for desiring the wrong things too much and forgive me for not desiring the right things enough. Lord, change my desires. We need to repent of wrong desires and seek by God's grace to cultivate better desires for better things. So the answer to our perspective problem is learning to think biblically. The answer to our passion problem is to deal with the desires of the heart. There's a third problem I want to look at this morning. We also have a power problem. We have a power problem, which means that growing in self-control requires divine empowerment. Put it this way, you need God's help. We need God's help. I think a lot of you here today, you really desire to grow in self-control. You want to, but it seems too hard. Maybe you've tried before. You've made no shortage of New Year's resolutions, saying this year is going to be different. This time I'm going to get it done. This time I want to change. But it never seems to stick. And, and you hate how it feels when you lose control. You hate the consequences of sin in your life. You see the damage it causes. But you probably think, that you just don't have it in you to change. And you know what? You're right. You don't have it in you to change. But here's the good news. While you are responsible to repent, you are responsible to obey, you are responsible to submit to Christ and to cultivate right desires and and pursue self-control, it doesn't just depend on you. Listen to 2 Peter 1.3, one of my favorite verses in the New Testament. It says, His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of Him who called us into His own glory and excellence. Did you catch that? His divine power, God's divine power, has granted to us, we who believe, Everything that we need for life and godliness. Think about that divine power for a moment. It's the power that created the heavens and the earth with a spoken word. That's power without comparison. It's the power that parted the Red Sea. Think about that power for a moment. It's the same power that flattened the walls of Jericho. The same power that kept Daniel alive in the lion's den. It's the same power that was born as a baby in Bethlehem, that fed 5,000 people with loaves and fishes, that healed the blind, that cast out demons. 
and that entered into the grave to do hand-to-hand combat with death itself and then won. It's that power. That power provides for us everything we need for life and for godliness. And self-control is one aspect of godliness. Think about that. God has given you everything you need. I want to tell you this morning about the power that is available to you. First, consider the power of God's word, the power of knowing the truth. John 8.32 says, you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. Another word for lack of self-control is being in bondage, being a slave to our impulses, a slave to our desires. Jesus says when we know the truth, the truth of the gospel, the truth of his word, we will be set free, that we will not be slaves. Listen to John 17, 17. Jesus prays for us. He says, sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. When we encounter the truth of God's word, we are sanctified, we're changed, we're made more holy. God's word has power to do that. 2 Timothy 3.16 says, All scripture is breathed out by God and it's profitable for teaching, for correction, for reproof, and for training in righteousness. What is growing in self-control if it's not training in righteousness? And Paul says that scripture is profitable for that. It's useful This will help us. We have God's word. Psalm 119 verse 9 says, How can a young man keep his way pure? One of the toughest areas for self-control for so many. How do we control our thought life? How do we control our sexual desires? How can a young man keep his way pure? By guarding it according to your word. It says in verse 11, I have stored up your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. God's word is alive. It is powerful. And this is something that God has provided for us. He's given us everything we need for life and godliness. And it starts with the word. In Ephesians chapter 5, God's word is called the sword of the spirit. But this weapon is too often left in its scabbard. Are you using the word? Are you storing it up in your heart? Are you immersing yourself in it so that it changes the way you think, so that it redirects your desires, so that it gives you proper perspective so you can think rightly? It starts in God's word. And this is something God has provided. So use it. There's power in the word. But there's also power in the gospel. God has provided for us Salvation through Jesus Christ. One of my favorite hymns is Rock of Ages, Cleft for Me. And one of the verses it cries out, it says, Be of sin the double cure. The double cure. Save from wrath and make me pure. Save from wrath. The gospel has power to rescue us from hell, from the penalty of our sin. That's save from wrath. But it's a double cure. It also does something else. And... Make me pure. The gospel has power to save us, not just from the penalty of sin, but also the power of sin over our lives. To jump back into Titus chapter 1, verse 14, or verse 12, rather. The grace of God not only saves us, but it also trains us. It trains us. Grace has this ongoing work in our lives. That's what the gospel does. Consider what Christ has provided. 
Romans chapter 6, verse 6 says, We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. The gospel makes us free. Romans 6, verse 17 says, Thanks be to God that you who were once slaves to sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed and having been set free from sin have become slaves of righteousness. The power of the gospel is strong enough to break the bonds of sin. It is powerful enough to help you become self-controlled. 2 Corinthians 5.17 says, If anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. The gospel is powerful. It is the power of God to everyone who believes. And and when, when scripture tells us we've been given everything we need for life and godliness, that includes the power of the gospel, setting us free from sin. We have the power of the truth, the power of the gospel, but third, we also have the presence of the Holy Spirit. Galatians 5.16 says, walk by the Spirit and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. That's not a maybe. That's a declarative statement saying that if you walk in the Spirit, if you depend on the Holy Spirit, if your will is aligned with God's Spirit, you will not fulfill the desires of the flesh. Galatians 5.22 says, The fruit of the Spirit, the evidence that the Spirit is at work within us, is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Against such there is no law. Verse 25 says, If we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. Listen, God has provided to you not only his word, not only the freeing power of the gospel, he's provided you his own personal presence through his Spirit. The explanatory power behind self-control is not just a person's ability to grit their teeth and try harder and dig their heels in. No, the explanatory power behind, the, behind self-control in the life of a believer is that the Spirit of God is there, and He is at work. He's doing His, his thing where He changes people and, and gives them the power to be different. Listen, you can change. You can. You can say no to self. But it must be driven by the gracious power of God. You cannot do this on your own. And you know what? Even if you could, who would get the glory for that? If you could sort of change all of the the undesirable traits in your life by your own power, who would get the credit? Who would get the glory? Well, you would. Because you're stronger and more determined than that other guy who hasn't figured it out yet. But when this kind of change is produced by the indwelling power of the Holy Spirit, you know who gets the glory? It's God. Because he has given us as a gift everything we need for life and godliness. It's his word, it's his gospel, it's his spirit. Listen, God must be the hero of our stories, which means we need to depend on the Holy Spirit. We have a power problem. We can't change on our own. But God has provided this power. The Holy Spirit is God. The Holy Spirit is not like on the JV team of the Trinity. Okay, he is fully God. He's just as much God as the Father. Just as much God 
as the Son, Jesus Christ. And he dwells in all who have come to believe the gospel. Everyone who's been born again has the Spirit. That's not something that just pastors have. That's not something that just the super serious godly saints have. That's something that the brand new believer has. That's something that the struggling believer has. We all have the Holy Spirit granted to us at salvation. The moment you're saved, the moment you're born again, you get all of the Holy Spirit. And then over the course of life, he gets more and more of us. This power is available to you. And when you lean on the Holy Spirit in humble dependence, then his strength will flow through you, enabling you to say no to the flesh and yes to the commands of Jesus Christ. And the result of that kind of life is going to be love and peace and patience and self-control. Listen, you have the word of God. You have the gospel of Jesus Christ. You have the power of the Holy Spirit. So if you don't believe victory is possible, if you say, okay, I get it, self-control is important, but I just think it's too hard for me, and I don't think I'm ever going to change. If you think that you're destined to struggle and fail in this area with little to no success for the rest of your life, then you have believed a lie. You believe something that's biblically false. If you think that you can't change and you won't change, you're refusing to believe God's promises. Will you really look at Jesus in his face and tell the son of the living God, the maker of heaven and earth, the one who has risen from the dead and is holding the keys of death and hell in his hands, Are you going to tell him that your challenges are too much and that he probably can't help you? That he's done a lot of amazing things, but this challenge would be too much for him. May it never be that we would persist in that kind of unbelief because that's what it is. When we say we can't change, it is unbelief. It's unbelief. Listen, we have a perspective problem, so we need to grow in self-control by starting to think biblically. We have a passion problem, which means growing in self-control requires dealing with the desires of our heart. We also have a power problem. So growing in self-control is going to require divine empowerment. We need the Holy Spirit's help. I think we all wish that we had more self-control. Maybe you wish you could control your words or your diet or your emotions or your thoughts. Maybe you wish that you were more disciplined in your studies that you weren't a procrastinator, that you were more diligent in your responsibilities in the home. Maybe you wish that you were were better at setting aside time to read Scripture and to pray or or to break those habits of, of, of social media intake, your cell phone usage. Listen, this topic of self-control can provoke a lot of feelings of guilt, a lot of feelings of shame and regret. But remember the answer that we started with. The solution To all of this is grace. It's grace. Self-control is a gift of grace. It's a fruit of the Holy Spirit. It's something God produces in us. But we have a responsibility to act. We do. Think about the children of Israel. They were promised the land of Canaan, weren't they? God said, the land is yours. The cities are yours. The farmland is yours. The riches and the wealth of this place is yours. But what did they have to do? They had to obey. They had to go into the land, and they had to take it by force, city by city, 
town by town, day by day. But as they entered into the land of Canaan, whose power was it that enabled them to succeed? Who was it that gave them the land, that gave them victory? It was God. It was God. So we have a responsibility to obey, to act. God will be faithful. And as we learn to obey him and trust him, we can expect to have success as his power secures the victory. So what is God calling you to today? What change needs to take place? Hebrews 12 tells us that as we run the race with endurance, we have to lay aside every sin and every weight that may be holding us back. What's God calling you to lay aside? In what ways do you need to obey the prompting of the Holy Spirit today? As we've considered this issue of self-control. Once again, the solution is not just more willpower. What you need today is grace. Grace that offers forgiveness and grace that trains us, as Paul tells Titus. Grace that trains us to renounce ungodliness, to renounce worldly passions or desires, and to live self-controlled, upright, godly lives in this present age. God freely offers this grace to all who will come to him with open hands and humble hearts. So come to him today. Draw near to God and seek to grow in this area by his grace. May we set our eyes on Jesus today and obey his call to deny ourselves, to take up our cross and to follow. And as we do, let's depend on the grace and the power that he supplies and allow him to change us from the inside out. Father, thank you for all that you have provided for us that we need for life and godliness. We thank you for your word, the word that teaches us to think differently, the word that tells us what is true, the world that wakes us, or the word that wakes us up from, from our, our worldly stupor and the lies that we tend to believe. Lord, thank you for providing for us salvation in Christ, the power of the gospel. Freedom from sin, from its power and its penalty. We thank you for the gospel that assures us one day we'll be free from the very presence of sin. When you return, you will make us new. Resurrected, glorified bodies with no more sin, no more temptation. We look forward to that. Lord, we thank you for the gift of your spirit and the divine power that is available to us at every moment, every day, if we will believe and rely and submit to him. Lord, help our church to grow in godliness. I pray that we would be a people who are pursuing and cultivating and teaching and modeling self-control. We ask this, Lord, so that you will get the glory, so that your gospel will be represented rightly in this community, so that we will become more and more like the Jesus we love. Amen.